0: So the question
1: we're asking is, why is the Lord's Supper a meal? Right? Why eating? Right? And we just read John chapter six, and Jesus says in John six, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be saved. And so why why can we not be saved unless we eat? Unless we drink? Oh. And I think the first answer is that if you think about eating and drinking, what is that in your life? Right, like if you had to rank the most important activities in your life, number one would be, of course, reading. Right? No, I mean, what what would be the number one thing that you need to do? You need to eat. You need to drink. Right? Uh, food is the most basic, the most necessary, the most life giving activity you can do. It is the most foundational, basic thing, and therefore, what Jesus is saying is that even more than food and drink, you need me. I am more foundational. I am more basic than food, right? And therefore, what Jesus is saying is that um, he is our true food. That's why we eat in the Lord's Supper. Because when we eat, what we're saying is you... Christ, you are our true food. You are our true sustenance. And notice in verse 35, at the very top, it says, whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, so that eating and believing are synonymous. They're the same thing. So that when we eat, we're believing in him, we're trusting in him, which means that to eat the Lord's Supper is an act of believing in him. And what you're saying is, you give me life more than even food and drink itself. I need you. And it really reminds me of Deuteronomy chapter 8, which Jesus quotes when he's tempted, right? Remember, Satan uh, takes him to the wilderness, and he says, turn these uh, stones into bread. And how, what does Jesus respond, right? Um, he, he has, wow, I underestimated. Um, what does he said? He says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, right? And if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, the reason why God says that is he says, the reason why I brought you to this wilderness where you're constantly in a state of need, where you, there's no food available, is to show you that ultimately you don't need food, you need me. And that's what Jesus says, right? Um, God is to obey God. That's, that's my true food. That's my true sustenance. So that's the first thing. We eat because we're confessing. It's a, it's a profound statement of faith. Jesus, you're my true food. You're my true drink. Um And then there's a second reason. So I know in the outline I have it numbered. Um, number one is uh, spiritual nourishment. Number two is uh, communion. but here I'm doing a sub. Point one too I mean, I don't know <laughs> if that makes any sense, okay. So number uh, uh, verse, if you look at verse 56 at the very end, right? very interesting. It says, who, Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, abides in me and I in him. That's very important language. Abides in me. Okay? So, what does this word abide remind you of? We've been talking about this in baptism. We've been talking about this all throughout our sacraments class. What does it remind you of? Or what concept, theological concept, who's who's been around long enough to remember? So the word "abide." Now, the first, the word "abide" is kind of like a spiritual, biblical word. You know, it's one of those words where it actually had a very normal meaning, but now we've kind of elevated it to a Christianese word. Um, it just simply means to dwell with or to live in. Dwell with and live in. So you mean tergum? Um, yes, but something else. <laughs> Anything? What? What theological concept? Am I looking for, when we talk about sacraments, for example. So we're talking about union with Christ. Right? And I've said before, right, that um, what is union, right? Union is when two becomes one. And the great example of this in the Bible is Ephesians 5, marriage, right? So that when you marry someone, everything that is hers becomes mine. Everything that is mine becomes hers, and we're one. And that's what happens in our salvation. Everything that is Christ, His righteousness, His approbation, His merits become ours. All our sin and guilt become His. Right? And we talked about how baptism expresses our union with Christ. Does anyone remember exactly the language in which it expresses union? Who remembers? Um, we were baptized into.
0: Christ.
1: Yes. Very good. So we are baptized in into Christ, right? It's kind of like we're going in him. He's going in us, right? We're uniting, right? And Jesus uses the exact same language. Abide is union language, right? Um, For example, he says, um, unless you abide in me, the true vine, you cannot bear fruit. So the the branch and the, the main trunk vine has to be united, right? We have to be connected to bear fruit. So he says that you experience union with me by eating. Okay, so let me just put this down. So this is very strange, okay? So let's so think this through with me, okay? It's going to get maybe a little bit conceptually difficult. Why does eating and drinking express union? How does it convey that we're connected to Jesus, that we are one with him, right? And I've really thought about this, and I think, um, let me just throw out some um, ideas, okay? So the first is that when we eat his body and his blood, that's what we're eating, right? Because Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. What are we doing? We're eating of his death, right? So we're participating, we're joining in his death. Remember in baptism, right, we are baptized into his death. And so that expresses our union, but there's something else. And and here's where I want you to think through with me, okay? So here's my illustration, right? When you really love someone, you want to, and don't think I'm crazy or strange, you want to eat them, okay? (laughs) When I hold Noah, my little two-year-old, my little one-and-a-half-year-old, I have this irresistible urge, I don't know if this is true, (laughs) to eat him. Right, his little toes. I just want to eat them. His little fingers. I just want to eat them. Do you, Sarah, please sympathize yes. with me. Yes, no, no, yeah.
0: I have songs about it too. Your songs? <laughs> i eating their toes. Yes. I'm gonna, sugar, gonna eat you up. Yes.
1: Right. When you love someone, what do you say? I love you so much. I could eat you. Right. <laughs> or here's another, you know, graphic image. Right. When a when a baby nurses on a mother, join us. I I've been saying how no one's been coming, so that we're not gonna need any chairs. But I, th- uh, Jeff, Jeff, I think it's okay. They can lean. Yeah. Jeff.
0: He's got it. Okay.
1: Um, <laughs> but he's gonna miss my graphic metaphor. <laughs> That's my. <why I> <laughs> when a baby nurses on his or her mother, right? I think there's something so profound that that it's not like the mother it's not like the baby you know you know how like a mother bird chooses food or chooses a worm and it feeds the baby bird right but it's actually the the nourishment is coming from the mom's body that just trips me out that's crazy right but there's a deep oneness and a deep connection i think in the nursing act and therefore i think the closest analogy to what's going on in the supper to help us understand the closest analogy Looking at me with, with <laughs> <expectations, yeah. laughs> the closest analogy is sex right because what happens in sex right you are becoming one with the other person right you are experiencing this deep oneness and therefore um, I've said before that the the analogy is marriage I mean uh, baptism is marriage. Uh, it's the marriage ceremony, maybe I should put it like that. And the Lord's Supper is sex. Okay? So I think it fits really well. How many times do you do the marriage ceremony? Once. Right? You can do a you can do a what's called a renewal ceremony, but it's not it's not the thing, right? It's 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 remembering, it's reflecting. But sex, you only have sex once. If you do, that's that's a very bad sign, right? you have it continually over and over again. Because what is this doing? This is recalling and renewing and going deeper into the oneness that you pledge yourself to in the marriage. Right? And so this is oneness. The eating is oneness. You're eating Christ. Right? You're, you're partaking <laughs> of him. Um, I don't have this printed in the bulletin, I mean in the uh, handout, but First Corinthians chapter 10, uh, Paul is rebuking the Christians for participating in pagan feasts. He says, you ought not to participate, and, and he says, because don't you understand what it means? And he gives the analogy of the Lord's Supper, and this is what he says. Chapter 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? The word participation is union language. Is it not a joining with? Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And so the Lord's Supper is communion with Christ. It is deep, intimate sharing, abiding. It is union with our Savior. And I think this is very interesting because it's not just that we're eating a meal with Christ, right? Not just with Christ, where you sit down and you're having a meal with someone. Because that's fellowship, right? That's intimacy, but it's even deeper than that. You are eating Christ. And if you think that language is too strong or it's too radical, I refer you again to John chapter 6. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Any questions? Any comments? Any thoughts? Alright, shall we go on? Alright, next, uh, next point. So when I say number two is actually number three. <laughs> so This is the third, the third thing of why a meal. Um, it's a meal because it's fellowship. Fellowship with others. So let's look at... Um, so basically, when we're looking at the uh, Lord's Supper, there's a vertical dimension... So I would put this as the vertical, right? Where you're communing, you're relating to God, right? It's a it's an act of faith. Number one, it's a it's an act of uh, union with Christ. Number two, and this is the horizontal, right? right? And notice the symmetry because in baptism there's also the vertical and the horizontal, right? In baptism you're united to Christ, and in baptism you're. you're baptized into one body, right, you're in, you're joined the church, and similarly to, similarly with the Lord's Supper, there's a horizontal dimension, so First Corinthians chapter 11, very famous passage, where are we, can I have, uh, did I have, Dorothy, did I have you read already? No, you did, right? You no, read John. I, I was here late. Oh, you were, okay.
0: <laughs> the whole passage? Yes. First Corinthians 11, 18-22. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? (laughs) Yeah, that's good! (laughs) There's an exclamation mark! (laughs) What? (laughs) Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not.
1: All right, so what is going on? Very enigmatic passage. In the Corinthian church, you have to understand In the ancient world, um, eating was a very significant activity. You would never just do it with people. And if you've ever seen uh, Downton Abbey, right, um, do the servants ever eat with the, uh, the downstairs? What do you call them, the, the nobility people? Do they ever eat together? Never. Okay, it's a very stratified society. The rich don't eat with the poor. You just don't do that. And so when the Corinthian church came to be, you have rich people, you have poor people, and their pagan cultural assumptions invade into the life of the church. And so during the Lord's Supper, the rich would eat separately and the poor would eat by themselves. And this is why he says in verse um, 22, right? you humiliate those who have nothing? So the rich would eat this feast, this sumptuous meal. Mm, yummy, right? And then the, 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 the poor Christians would eat out, and they would have nothing, right? And so Paul says, what? Right? He's really mad. He says, you've made the Lord's Supper into a meal. Rather than what it should have been, you've made it a meal of strife and division. And that's a deep violation of the purpose of a meal, Because the purpose of a meal is when you sit down with someone, it's an act of profound friendship and kinship. And so the meal is supposed to be a meal of unity and fellowship, right? Let me just write that. And so this is why you're not supposed to eat the Lord's Supper by yourself. If you're eating it by yourself, you're doing it wrong. Um, You always eat it with your church Family, right? And you always eat it together. Um, so that's the horizontal dimension. So it tells us that we are one community. We are together. We eat from one one meal. Any questions on that? Yes. Um, how come like different churches? I guess like distribute um, the Lord's
0: Supper differently. Like some churches, like you go up and then um, you like rip off a piece of bread and you dip it and then like, you just eat it. And like as you dip, they say like the body of Christ is with you. Or something. Sure, sure. So, so I just, mean,
1: like, so every every church is. I mean, everyone eats meals differently, right? right. Every family eats it. A little so there's bit no like one right or wrong way, right? No, no. So the crucial aspects is number one bread, number two the cup, right? And then, um, and then there has to be words of instruction. Um, and and I gave this analogy before, right? Um, the sacraments is like the handshake after you negotiate a deal. But if you go to someone and you just shake their hand, that means nothing. But if you say, I will pay you $100 for your bike, and then you shake, that has profound meaning. So the Lord's Supper should always be accompanied with instruction, which is why in the PCA, in in the denomination that we are in, um, the Lord's Supper cannot be administered by anyone other than an ordained minister, which is why um, Wade and Harry cannot, according to the rules of our denomination, uh, administer the sacraments. It has to always be me or another ordained minister. I don't know if I, I went off on a rabbit trail. Yeah. No, that's okay. <laughs> Alright, so uh, any other questions? Um, so let's look at the institution of the Lord's Supper. So this is Matthew chapter 26, right? And here I want to talk about um, the fact that the Lord's Supper has both a, a retrospective and a prospective um, orientation. So there's the Lord's Supper. It points forward to something, and it points backwards to something, okay? So, Matthew 26, where are we? Jeff, can I have you read it? I'm going to interrupt you, but please, bravely read.
0: And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. All right,
1: so stop. Um, so the, what does this tell us? What, what, what meal does it point back to? Passover. Yes, Passover. Um, so this happened in the Old Testament during the time of the Exodus Uh, Israel, uh, the people of God were slaves in Egypt and God through Moses liberates his people through the plagues and in the last plague in the last night there's the angel of death who kills the firstborn of every household But uh, but Israel, the people of God can be spared if they what? Who can tell me? Let me. So let me throw it out. Yes, if, um, if each household takes a lamb, yes, uh,
0: kills it, uh, eats the lamb, and takes the blood of that specific lamb and brushes it on the doors and I think windows of the house. Uh, yeah,
1: just the doors, the the the, the posts and the lintel, so the frame. So there are four crucial components of the Passover meal. There's the lamb. Um, there's the unleavened bread. So it has to be an unblemished lamb. Why unblemished? Because it's looking forward to Christ. Yeah, it's a sacrifice. Yeah, You don't give God this crummy lamb that's all limping and all spotty. You give, la- you give God this perfect lamb because it's, it's a picture of atonement, right? And an unleavened bread, does anyone remember why it's unleavened? By the way, what does unleavened mean? No yeast. No yeast. Why no yeast in the bread? Haste. Explain.
0: Um, because God is telling them that they're going to leave Egypt so quickly that their bread will not have time to leaven. Exactly, right. Which is kind of funny because it's like this elaborate meal,
1: but don't put yeast in it. Because it's a symbol that they're leaving in haste, right? They're, they're rushing out. Um, and in bitter herbs, the bitter herbs is to remind them of their time of Great sorrow, four hundred years of slavery in Egypt, and then why it's a celebratory
0: meal as well? Right? Yes. Um, there's another thing that actually that passage also specifies that Israelites only, aka circumcised people only, which is yes. We'll talk about that. Conveniently parallel to this idea of baptism, and as well as we talk. Yes. Yeah. About so yeah well,
1: yes. I'll connect that all the way at the end. So you know, hold your horses. Right. Ready. Right. Okay. <laughs> so. So. Okay. So. The Passover has four crucial elements. There has to be a lamb, there has to be bread, there has to be herbs, and wine, okay? Now, notice, uh, let's keep reading, actually. Um, Where are we? Hanson, 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it broke, and gave to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. I keep going. Oh, okay. (laughs) And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you
0: for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new to you and my Father's kingdom
1: yeah so notice if you, if, this was a very weird Passover meal because the, the main meal the lamb was missing there's no mention of the meat right because Christ is saying I'm the sacrificial lamb I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die on the cross and then he transforms the meaning of the elements so he says the bread is my body the wine, the, the, the cup is my blood he doesn't mention the herbs don't ask me, I don't know what to do with it <laughs> <laughs> um, but he transforms the meaning of the meal and he takes the bread he breaks it, symbolizing his uh, broken body he takes the cup and he pours out the wine right? which shows that his blood is going to be poured out. So it's an, he's reenacting his death on the cross. And then, did you read verse 29? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah so well, let me read it again. Um, so, he's, so he's referring back to the Passover, right? And then he refers to a future meal. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And so he's talking about a future meal. He said, I'm going to drink the wine again. And the Bible constantly, if you read throughout the whole Old Testament, it's constantly talking about this future, glorious, um, heavenly um, uh, a meal where everything is going to be right. Everything is going to be beautiful. Everything is going to be good again. And I don't know. I mean, I, the image I have, and it's kind of in the wrong sequence, but in the Lord of the Rings, right, there's, uh, what, what's his name? Um. Uh, bilbo's birthday party right and everyone's just having so much celebratory fun all the hobbits are celebrating that's this meal that we're waiting for and i don't have it printed for you but as isaiah 25 listen to this on this mountain the lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food a feast of well-aged wine of rich food full of marrow of aged wine, well refined. And you have to understand, by the way, that in the ancient world, you only ate meat maybe three or four times a year. Meat was extremely expensive, right? So the only time you would really eat meat, you would never just eat meat by yourself, because that's just selfish. That's wrong. And by the way, to eat meat, you had to slaughter a whole animal. Where are you going to put that animal? In the, fri- in the freezer? There's no freezers, right? So you always eat meat, all of it, together in one meal, right? So it's a feast, right? And so you have to understand how incredibly scintillating, exciting, wonderful it was to eat this feast, right, together. And Revelation 19 tells us what is this meal. So where are we? Uh, Theo, can I have you read that?
0: Um, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb.
1: So we find out it's a marriage meal. It's a wedding feast. And uh, in the ancient world, right, I mean, we have dinner receptions after a wedding, but that's nothing compared to the ancient world. Because even now in the Middle East, they have multiple day affairs, right, where it just goes on and on and on. You just eat and eat. It's like this buffet that never ends. Um, And it was like the most festification. Like, you know, we, we we're like, oh, my goodness, you have to spend like, Twenty thousand dollars on the wedding. They would spend an enormous sum of money because because th- there, there's a, there's an ancient saying in the ancient world, right? Um, you store your meat in other people's stomachs, right? So because uh, they don't have refrigeration, right? So so this is a way of, of 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 building you know credits with everyone. Everyone, you're eating my meat. I'm gonna claim that meat later on <laughs> when I go to your fe- wedding feast, right? So so therefore, what this is is the Lord's supper. Is a what? What is that thing in a wedding? um, The day before, (laughs) rehearsal dinner, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's been a long time since I got married. Uh, So uh, (laughs) rehearsal dinner. So it is a it is a dim shadow. It is a dim reflection of this future heavenly. Marriage wedding feast that is awaiting us. And by the way, this feast, for all we know, goes on forever. It is an amazing feast. If you've ever wondered, can I just somehow like keep eating and never stop, yes. it's coming, right? Yes. <laughs> um, and I think this tells us why, therefore, the Lord's Supper looks so paltry. Because it is a solemn meal. It's a meal of remembrance. Yes, we're thinking back. It, it, it evokes the Passover. It's solemn. It has death overtones. But it's a celebratory meal. But this is why it's so paltry. It is It is a shadow of what is to come. Um, any quick questions before we go on to the next points? All right. So, uh, before we move on, I, I know I skipped that one little bar. So, this... The fact that it's uh, connected to Passover helps us, it reminds us that um, there's a beautiful symmetry. So in the Old Testament, there were two sacraments. In the New Testament, there are two sacraments. And they neatly fit together. So uh, in the Old Testament, the the sacrament, the rite of initiation is circumcision. And it becomes baptism in the New Testament. We talked about this last week. Uh, In the Old Testament, uh, there's a rite of fellowship in which you continue to eat again and again. How often was the Lord uh, Passover eaten, David? Once a year. Yes! Very good. So once a year. No, it's not the Lord's Supper, it's Passover. So Passover, you would eat it continually once a year, and then it becomes the Lord's Supper. And notice that these are bloody. There's blood. You have to kill a lamb. You have to cut the skin. I've never seen a circumcision, but I imagine there's blood, right? Um, Rabbis do this. I'm so glad I'm not a rabbi. (laughs) (laughs) Even now I see my little boy Noah. I don't know how you could even do it. But anyways. (laughs) Because it's so tiny, right? Um, So there's blood, okay? So there's blood. But notice the New Testament equivalent replacements is what? No blood. Why? Very significant. Because the blood anticipates the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And the fact that the New Testament, Jesus Christ has come and completed His what he came to do, means that it's fulfilled. It's done. There's no more need for blood. I think you guys don't understand how amazing the difference between Old Testament religion and New Testament religion is. Because in Old Testament religion, you were constantly awash in blood. There was blood everywhere. And everything you do, blood. <laughs> there's no blood. Do you know what that means? It's been paid. Right? It's amazing. All right. Um, so, there's that. We're going to go on to the next point. Any questions? Alright. Now, so, now for the fun. Wasn't this already fun? More fun. Um... So now we're going to talk about the presence of Christ. During the Reformation, this occupied by far the most amount of press and ink, amount of heat, right? They just fought, 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 like cats and dogs over this issue. We don't fight over this issue anymore, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Partially because I think um, it... Is not the main, 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 main issue, but the fact that they fought over it tells us that it must. There's some importance to it. So, and I took a whole semester of seminary class on this. I must use it one day. I told him I'm going to use this one day in church. And today is the day. <laughs> All, right. All right. So, um, so let's read. Uh, uh, David, can you read First Corinthians 11?
0: <laughs> yeah, Sean, yeah. Sorry. I'm
1: sorry. There's many Davids.
0: For well, I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus went on the night when, he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks he worked. this is my body which is for you to do this in remembrance of me.
1: This is my body. The most debated verse in all of the Bible. Um so what does it mean? And let me uh sketch up for you. So I'm going to get a little theologically wonky, so please be patient. I do this for your fun, but also for your uh, nourishment. There are four essential positions. So there's the Roman Catholic and the Lutheran position. I'm going to put them together because um, they're very similar. There is the the Calvinist position or the Reformed position. And then there is the um, Baptist position. Okay? Let me just say again at the outset... We are not saying, aha, you're wrong, therefore, you, you evil, vile creature. These are our brothers. We love our brothers. And so even though there are disagreements, it's OK, all right? So um, let me just say that at the outset, all right? So the Roman Catholic Lutheran position I would call the literalist position. If you are familiar with the terminology, Roman Catholic is a transubstantiation, which the elements are transformed consubstantiation for Lutheran means they're with, alongside. So basically, when Jesus says, this is my body, he means it. He's not messing around. He's not using symbolic language. He means it. And so this is the physical body of Jesus. Okay? So when you, at the supper, when you eat the bread, when you drink a cup, you are eating the body of Jesus. So his presence is there physically, literally. Does that make sense, everybody? The Baptist position is called the, the um, memorialist position. So let me just call it mem- I'm having trouble spelling memorial. Let me see. Is that how you spell it? Well done. Thank you. So the analogy I would use is It's um, like visiting the Lincoln Memorial. Has anyone visited the Lincoln Memorial? So, yes. So you stand there. Now, is Abraham Lincoln there? No. But you see his image. I'm told it's like five times your height, right? So it's it's enormous, right? So you you see his image. You read his words. You think about what he did, the Civil War. And you remember him. And so the Baptist position is that when Jesus says, this is my body, he means it metaphorically, imagery, symbolically. He's not there, there, but you remember him, okay? This is, by the way, the majority position right now in the United States. I, I don't know. So it should, sound, it should sound familiar. Nobody probably said Lincoln Memorial, but it, you know that's probably what's going on, right? Um, oh, and so let me just tell you the problems, okay? Because obviously I'm going to end here. Um <laughs> So the problem with the literalist position is that um, this says that Jesus' body can be everywhere all the time. Like the omnipresent body. But we know that Jesus' body is in heaven. And he has a human body. Human bodies can't be everywhere. So that's the problem there. The memorialist position, the problem there is when Jesus says, um, at the end of verse 24, right, in 1 Corinthians, it says, do this in remembrance of me. The remembrance is not an intellectual, cognitive remembering. Because you see this all over the Bible. So, for example, when the Bible says, remember the poor, are you supposed to say, oh, yes, the poor? <laughs> they, they don't have a very much, do they? Oh, that's very interesting. I do remember them. No, when the Bible says, remember the poor, what? You're supposed to love the poor. Have a relationship with the poor. Invite the poor into your life. Befriend the poor. Do something with the poor, right? So when it says, remember, when Jesus says, remember me, he's not just saying cognitively think about me. He's saying, worship me, adore me, trust me, obey me, okay? Versus forgetting Jesus. All right, so the Calvinist position is called the real presence. And so very similar to the Catholic and Lutheran position, Jesus is really there at the supper, but he's not there in body. He's there with, in, and through the Holy Spirit. Right? And so Catholics say we, 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 we believe, uh, we, we, we partake Christ, we unite with Christ with our mouths, we eat Him. But the Calvinists would say we eat, eat, eat Him through the mouth of our soul, through faith. Right? And in that sense, uh, we talked about this before. It's a seal, right? We talked about how sacraments are a sign and it's a seal, right? And so what's a seal? I said this before, right? Imagine a a father and a child walking along, and the father says, I love you. And then suddenly, he picks his little boy up, he hugs him, he kisses him, he snuggles with him, and the boy feels the love of, of his father far more deeply, far more intimately than he did when they were just walking side by side. So that's the seal. So what the Lord's Supper is, is that the Lord's Supper, Jesus is truly with us. When he says, this is my body, I'm here, I'm with you. Through the Holy Spirit, you receive me by faith, and I love you. And so the Lord's Supper, why should you take the Lord's Supper? Because you're receiving the Father's, he's hugging you, he's picking you up, he's kissing you, he's in your mind. You know? Um. Any questions or comments? There. Yeah. This was a whole semester, by the way. <laughs> All right.
0: Um, is there any uh, physical vacuum for for that kind of flow of logic?
1: There. <laughs> or is
0: it just looking at what these two polar? They're not opposites, but the Roman Catholic and Lutheran versus,
1: versus the Baptist. Baptist yeah. So, because it was a whole semester, um, it was a tremendous amount of scriptural discussion. I don't completely remember. <laughs> um, um, I remember to some degree. I mean, if, if I saw the text again, I would I would I could recall it. I just remember the logic. And so there was a lot of logic and argumentation.
0: Because logically, that makes sense.
1: Like, I think oh, it does. Oh, okay. <laughs> but but I, I'm, just,
0: I'm just wondering, is that like based on, oh, well, this is the Roman Catholic view versus the Baptist view, and they both have uh, validity on both sides, and so?
1: Yeah, so when I was in seminary, my professor would always tell me that the Calvinist position actually has a lot of affinity with the Roman Catholic and Lutheran positions because they believe that Jesus is truly there. But they just go too extreme. He's there in the body. Um, But the Baptist memorialist view is they believe he's not there at all, but you remember him. When I was sitting in class, my recollection of the class is I actually think the Calvinist position does have a lot of affinity with the Baptist position because I don't think people think that he's not there. But maybe they over-accentralize the memory aspect of it, and they don't also emphasize that he's truly there. So I think most people are somewhere in between these two positions, you know. So it helps to like sit down and think through that he's truly there. That, that's, that's. I mean, honestly, when I was doing my lesson, I said, i got to throw this in. So <laughs> that was my intent. That was that, thank you. Thank you. Yes? Is he
0: there because he's always there with us, or is he there no. because of the
1: sacrament? He's there especially through the sacrament. He's always there with it. Yes. (laughs) But he does say, like, I dwell on
0: you. Yeah,
1: so I think this is where the seal aspect is important. Right? Um, Like, when you're walking with your father, he's there. Mm -hmm. You know he loves you. But then there are special moments when the father picks you up. And then you know it. You feel it. I think we feel the seal aspect sometimes in worship service, when you sing songs or when you listen to a sermon you hear your father's voice, right? Or sometimes you're doing your private devotionals. So you have a variance in your um, subjective experience of the father's love. And so what the Lord's Supper is saying is that that subjective experience of the father's love becomes accentuated and heightened. It peaks at the Lord's Supper. That's my quantitative (laughs) data graphic representation.
0: Just listening to Ezra, um, the the word over there "seal" is, is, a, is I, I'm assuming it's some sort of technical language. And right, you were talking about you know the, the words and the hugs. However, you know with point one over there, Jesus being our true food. Um, I, there's I I don't maybe it's that I don't understand the term very well. but I don't think that term quite captures that aspect of it. In that it's not quite as superfluous in in that um, in the Hugs example like in this there there is this idea of true sustenance that our, our, our very spiritual selves we need this or we wither and die Yes, um, and I, I don't is there a technical term to kind of cover that aspect or is so that I don't understand the word the way the word seal is being used or what
1: so I don't know if I completely understand but what you're trying to say is that When we eat Christ for our nourishment and sustenance, that is a sealing aspect
0: of our Christian life. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm I'm asking because the way I understand seal with your example doesn't cover that aspect.
1: Yeah, so so the idea of seal is authentication, assurance, so it has a a range of meanings. I'm just focusing on this narrow range because I'm trying to convey it through this helpful illustration. I don't know if that makes sense. Okay.
0: And my original two questions was, uh, the first one be... Wait, wait. I'm going to, I apologize.
1: I'm going to stop you because we only have a couple more minutes left. And I do want to get to the other material. So you can talk to me afterwards. Is that okay? (laughs)
0: What I say is that okay
1: I meant it rhetorically it's okay but let me just let me forge ahead okay so finally question I think uh, Tim actually brought this up at the end or somewhere early on who may partake of the supper Um, let me go right away to the end which is can children partake of the supper so uh, there's a specific word for this does anyone familiar with that word you guys must have heard it no
0: Okay. <laughs> I
1: don't know, you tell me. <laughs> I can say no. No, okay. <laughs> Pater communion. Has anyone heard of Pater No? Oh, that just means. Yes. Oh, see, you guys, you did that. okay. So, <laughs> um <laughs> All right, so Pater communion. So the argument behind Pater communion, we I uh, I I don't hope Pater communion. Um, but the idea behind pado-communion is that if infants can be baptized right, I forget where we put the chart but infants can be baptized, why can't infants be circumcised, I mean uh, why can't infants also partake of the supper right Um, and the the, the reason why they cannot and the reason why we do not let our children partake of communion until they've gone through uh, uh, confirmation is there's a distinction between baptism and the Lord's Supper in baptism, you're passive. It's being done to you, so you could be a baby. You don't need active consent. But the Lord's Supper is you're actively participating. Because Jesus says, remember me. Remembering is, you got to know what you're remembering. An infant cannot remember. And so, because it's an active rite of, of sanctification and fellowship, um, it requires um, consent, it requires a participation, it requires thought. I thought... This is going to be a much bigger issue because I thought several people would have heard of it, but no. So let's move on. Any other questions there? No. All right. So let's go to who may partake of the supper. And the answer is only baptized members of the church. So, all right. This is where you're going to get uncomfortable and, and maybe dislike me. <laughs> so I beg your forgiveness. Okay. Um, but let's talk about this. Okay. We don't like this. Because I think, because we are American individualists, and American individualism is, is all about saying, who are you to tell me what I can and cannot do? But the church absolutely has the right to restrict the supper only to a certain group of people. And the church... The the group of people has to be believers in Christ, meaning they have to be baptized members of either this church or another, another church. And to help us understand this, let's go back to this very familiar distinction that we talked about several times before. There's the invisible church and the visible church, right? All right, who remembers what this difference is? What's the invisible church? What's the visible church? I, I, you can't see. Good. It has to do with seeing.
0: Good. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: like Wonder Woman's plane. And something else. Saints, no. Uh, the invisible church is what God sees. Okay. That's good. But What else? I've talked about this like five times and I feel
0: a failure. Everyone, everyone is saved, right? Yes. Okay. Everyone in the, the visible church is not necessarily.
1: This is the church that God sees. This is everyone who is saved. Or if you want to put it in Calvinist terms, the elect. Okay? The visible church is the church that we see and includes everyone who is who is uh, baptized. All right? Because do we know who is saved? Because wh- who knows that alone? God knows because it's a matter of faith. Can we see faith? We can see evidences of faith. but as God said to, uh, to Samuel right speaking about uh, David, you look on the outside, but I look on the inside, right? So we cannot see so how can we tell if you' if someone's a Christian? What's the only way we can tell? We need the outward signs that you're saved. And the outward sign is baptism, right? So, as I said before, the visible church is all we see. So this is the visible church. And you enter the visible church, how? Through baptism. And inside the visible church, you partake the Lord's Supper. So someone will ask, well, what if I'm here? I'm saved, but I'm not in the visible church. I would just tell that person, well please join the visible church. But, but, but there are people who are who don't want to join. So they're immature. right? So let's say they're a lone ranger Christian. They're at home. I believe in Jesus. They have true faith. God says, you are mine. You're my child. But they don't want to be inside the church. Can they, if they visit us, can they partake of the Lord's Supper? And the answer is no, because we don't know you. right? And I think the better way to think of it is that um, the, the Lord's Supper is a family meal. And it's a family meal in which a stranger cannot come in and say, hey, can I eat with you guys? And you would say, what are you doing inside my house, right? (laughs) Um, and, And no, because you're not part of this family. How do you join the family? Well, every family has its own rituals. The church has a ritual in which you join the family. It's called baptism. It's called church membership, right? And so... Um, and so uh, 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 and therefore the, the Lord's Supper is communally decided and the conditions to enter is determined by the church um, uh, uh, and so that's the answer and therefore here's an implication and this one you're not going to like you're going to get very uncomfortable and very unhappy with me therefore it is improper for campus ministries to partake the Lord's Supper um, because what are they doing um, they're having a church meal, but they're not the church. Um, similarly, they cannot—it's improper for them to baptize because um, what is the? I mean, so the—I <laughs> always feel a little nervous talking about this. All right, so <laughs> I think mean, there's two helpful ways to think about things, right? There's there's the organic church, and then there's the institutional church. Okay. And organic church is basically when all Christians, when they just get together. Like you get together at work, you get together at school. You pray for each other. You could read the Bible together. You could sing songs together. That's wonderful, and that's good, and that's affirming. And I applaud campus ministries for doing that. But there are certain things that the that you do as a church body that you can only do in the institutional church, which is you can only have elders in the institutional church, right? You can only have the sacraments in the institutional church. Because it needs to be under the oversight and administration of elders, because elders do what's called fencing. Has anyone heard of that concept, yes. where you fence the table? Yes. So the table, so if this is a table, right, the elders say, who can come to the table? And they draw the boundary. They, they define the line. And what is the line? You must be a follower of Christ. How do we know you're a follower of Christ? The elders decide. Well, you must be baptized. You must be a member of this church, or maybe you could be a visiting member of another church. And so that's why the sacraments has to be held within the institutional church, not the organic church, not campus ministries. So there's there there's I said my piece. <laughs> I have <a> question. Okay. <laughs> so I've uh, I've I've
0: been to so churches where where this is. For after I was a Christian, they just
1: assumed like I could go up and take, take it. Yeah. It
0: just they, they just never asked. Yes. So what? So what? Is so so it's
1: called so. There's two kinds of tables. There's open table, closed table. Okay. So okay. we practice what's called a closed table because right. we we say the table is only for Christians. Other people, they other churches, they don't. Well, I don't want to you know think about their motives, but um, they they they. I think they don't want to offend. Because when you basically say "don't come to the table," uh, it's, it can be offensive. Because who are you? But how do I know you're, you're not a Buddhist? You're, not, you're, you're a Buddhist looking for a meal, right? So if you're a Buddhist, I'm happier in the church. Please, we extend friendship to you. We extend our companionship to you. But the table is not yours. The table is the body and the blood of Christ. And as Paul says, if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, you eat and drink in judgment to yourself. You may not partake unless you are connected to Him. That's the answer. Let me close in prayer, and then we will end. Heavenly Father, thank you for this meal that teaches us you are our true food, that teaches us that we are united to you, that teaches us that we are one community, united together, um, no rich and poor, no Jew and Greek. And so, Lord, we thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.